0: If you will take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. On the screen, you'll see we're continuing the series, the unveiling, a series of messages from the Revelation. Today's message is an interesting message. The Backslidden Church. Revelation 2, you just hold that first verse. We'll get there in just a second. We begin part two of the Revelation in in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things which have been. Chapters two and three are the things which are, and then four and beyond are the things which will be. Now some of you are saying, well, this is great. Two and three, this is the things which are. That's today. I really, to, I really want to know about this. Well, folks, this is bittersweet. It is true that we want to know what God thinks about the church today, but let me tell you the, the bitter part of it. This is a mirror. This is a mirror. Now, you may be partial to mirrors and pictures. Your pastor hates both mirrors and pictures. Because every time a picture is taken of me, and every morning when I walk into that bathroom and I look in that stupid, flawed mirror, you know what it shows me? It shows me one more flaw in me. It shows me some aging. It shows me something that really kind of makes me mad if you just want to know the truth. And I dare say when we hold ourselves up To the mirror of God, it may be a little more painful. We may find ourselves smarting a little bit. And we have a couple of choices as we make through these seven churches. We have a couple of choices. We can either dismiss it that nobody's perfect, which seems to be the mantra in the church today, or we can take God at His Word, and we can let it change our lives. If you will, to read this text, let's stand to honor the reading of God's Holy Word. Revelation chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1 and read uh, through verse 7. You listen intently. This is God's Holy Word. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says... now." For remembrance sake, clarity sake, and for those who weren't here, a couple of points that we need to... Seven is the number for completion. Several weeks ago, we had a, a whole message on numbers. Seven is the number of completion. That means this message is to every church. He, he is holding every church. And he's called, then he speaks of the stars. That is the messenger, the pastor, the angel that he gives this to, he holds them in his right hand, and he walks among the seven gold lampstands. Does everybody know what the lampstands are? The churches. And then he says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary but I have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first remember how far you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place Unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And all God's people said. Father, we pray today that this portion of your word will be so laminated on our hearts that we will repent, that we will do the first works, the works that you've called us as your people to do in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book entitled Biblical Preaching, Haddon Robinson tells this story. It was in the 1700s that the missionaries were being sent out from the London Missionary Society. And, as they went out into the South Pacific, they faced some distractions and obstacles, particularly on an island of the island of Tonga Now, the distractions the obstacles that they faced down there came from fellow Europeans who, like their freewheeling immoral do what you want to lifestyle. In fact, the way that these Europeans would would tempt and test the missionaries were, was with, they would taunt them and tease them about their sexual purity because on the island of Tonga it was kind of uh, a moral free-for-all, kind of like America today. Uh, one of the missionaries, the story is told that one of the missionaries, a man named George Vieson, could not withstand the temptation. So he left the missionary society, and he joined the culture. He bought lands. He took servants. He even took for himself a harem of wives. Now, we think that's bad. He ruined his reputation, ruined his witness, He brought harm to the London Missionary Society. But listen, he brought shame and disgrace on the name of God and the gospel of God. I suggest this to you today, that in a backslidden condition, that churches who backslide, and that when we sin, that we have forgotten that we bring disgrace and shame and reproach on the name of God. Our sin, our lifestyle as believers in him, brings shame to him. There is no greater sin than backsliding. Years past, preachers stood in the pulpit and they talked about backsliding, and like so many other things today we don 't talk about it much anymore, and yet it is a biblical term you will find backsliding in the in the Bible three or four times in the Old testament, and it literally means to Fall back. It means to revert back. If I were to paint you a picture, it would be a picture of you climbing a, a hill, which is probably a slippery slope. You know what? I have found this, Jamie, on the slippery slopes. You can either go up or down. But if you stop, you're going down. You fall back to where you were. This is the picture of the church at Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was an was a imp- impressive city. The church at Ephesus was an impressive church. I mean, the city was striving, and by man's standards, the church was striving. God knew, our Lord knew, that people in the church, that people in the city, thought the church was doing pretty good. It would be well for us to note at this point that his ways and his standards and his plans are not the same as ours. For a church to think they're doing well is one thing. But Jesus, remember though in chapter 1, remember the description that we saw of Jesus, his eyes of fire? He sees and he knows. So let's kind of walk down and see how he dealt with the church of Ephesus. I begin with us thinking of his commendation. He found some things that he really liked about, about the city. But if you'll, if you'll look there in in chapter 2, Verse 2, those first two words are very important. Here's how his commendation starts In a moment. He's going to put it on the screen for you. With these two words, I know. It is going to be there, I promise. I know. Do you understand that Jesus knows everything? He says, I know what you do good, I know what you do bad. Now today we simply want to dismiss that, but please listen. Listen. In fact, I was reminded this morning as I watched Dr. Stanley on TV as I was getting dressed. One day, like it or not, we're going to be accountable for every word we say, every deed we do, every thought we think, every action we take, every influence we have. We're going to be accountable for it because, you see, Jesus knows. And he don't just know what we do. As we'll get to in a second, he knows what we think. But look at some of the things. Go ahead, Brandon. Look at some of the things. We'll take it right from Scripture that he knows. First of all, he says, I know your your works. I know what you do. I know that service that you give. And then he says, I know your labor. Now, labor is a little different. Labor is a little different than works. Because labor literally means that you work to the point of exhaustion. May I ask you a question? How long has it been since you've done something in the work of the Lord and you labored to the point of exhaustion? You see, he said, I I know your works and they're good. I know your labor. I know that you've labored, that you have stuck with it. But I also, number three, know your commitment and your conviction. I know exactly what it is that you're doing. Now, what are their convictions? Watch this. The Scripture says, Your endurance, you've endured some things, you cannot tolerate evil. This is their conviction. They stood on their conviction. Watch this. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You see, the truth is, very pointedly, Jesus tells this church that they have stood on solid ground. They have tested the people who claimed, who gave lip service, who would stand in the church and give one testimony, and their lives represented something else. Paul called this having a form of godliness but denying the power that comes with the godliness. Literally, it is almost a hypocrite. But I want you to think about this. The people at Ephesus were, in fact, holding people's feet to the fire. Those folks who professed to be believers were expected to live like believers, and act like believers. And Jesus is commending this church for not allowing evil to permeate the body. Now, I want to say this to you very clearly, and I know some in this room disagree with me. You're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with this book. This puts to rest the idea that you are a member of the body of Christ and you're not accountable to your church. There are those that say, I can do what I want to. It's none of anybody's business. That's not the Bible way, and that's not Jesus' way. You see, he commended them for holding the right living. That's why Paul wrote to Titus what he wrote, reject the, the divisive men. That's why he wrote to Corinthians, and he said, you know, you need to get in there and make and, and clean things up because there are people living in your church as a part of your church professing to be uh, believers in me and part of the kingdom, and they're disgracing the kingdom. Oh, and by the way, there's another thing here. Down in, verse, uh, um, down in verse 6, it says you do have this also. Talking about their conviction. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, years ago when I started seriously reading the Bible, the first commentary I w- read told me that the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas. Now, who is Nicholas? If you go back to Acts chapter 6 in the original 7, Nicholas is listed. That particular commentator said this, said Nicholas had tried to usurp the authority of the pastors in the church, and now he tried to lord it over people, and that was part of the Nicolaitans' philosophy. Now, you read other commentaries today, and you find out that that some think the Nicolaitans... uh, were very sexually immoral. Others think it had to do with idolatry. But let me tell you this, whatever the Nicolaitans' problem was, whether it was power and control, whether it was idolatry, or whether it was immorality, make sure that Jesus hated it. And they stood on their convictions. Now some of you are going, Brother Jerry, you're so weird today. Well, I'm a new granddad. I'm allowed a week or two of weird, okay? And you look on the screen, you go, well, there's no alliteration. And for those who don't know what alliteration is, it don't start all with one letter. So if I were to alliterate this, I would do it this way. I would change works to service. I would change labor to sacrifice. I would change conviction to steadfastness. And then there's one more thing here, suffering. He commended them for their suffering. He says, you also possess endurance and have tolerated Many things because of my name. You know, it is one thing to suffer as a part of this fallen world. Somebody wants to know why, good, why bad things happen to good people, you could tell them that we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden when we chose to disobey God. It is one thing to have bad things to happen to you because of the fallen nature of this world, but it is entirely Something different. Please listen to your pastor's heart. It is entirely something different. To give your life to the gospel. To to do your best to walk in his shoes. To do your best to live for the gospel. And then experience suffering. Because you do it. And yet. And yet, we are told that they endured things, that they suffered things for Christ. They knew what it was to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why it is that believers in the United States of America possess so little commitment to God? could it be that we really don't know what it is to suffer for our beliefs in Jesus? The Bible teaches and history proves that the purest church is the persecuted church. You say, well, Brother Jerry, if you're doing for Jesus, everybody's going to love you. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said, look, he said... You will be hated because of my name. And he went on to say, If they hate you, be reminded they hated me first. The Ephesian church withstood many attacks from outside, but the Ephesian church also withstood many attacks from inside. And because they stood their ground and stood on His Word and they stood for the body. He was now commending them. Now, if I were to pause here and just kind of try to translate this part in 21st century parlance, I can see Jesus saying, hmm, you got great ministries. You're doing great things. You're giving good to missions. You have good people. That seems to be the mantra of the day. You enjoy, you enjoy great food and some fellowship." You have exciting times of worship. In fact, the truth is, the Ephesian church to the world, they rocked. They had it all. And Jesus has just kind of set the stage like a master writer. And He said, here's all the things you're doing good, and it's good. And then He moves, and we see His condemnation His condemnation. I want you to think about this. Can you imagine having been in that Ephesians church when this letter was come and read? Can you imagine it? And you get through this laundry list of things. Man, your service, your sacrifice, your steadfastness, your suffering. You're thinking, man, we're we're on a roll. And then he says, yeah, you have all this thing, but... Don't you hate that word when God's talking to you? Verse 4, but I have one thing against you. Now I want you to think about that. He's just given a laundry list of things that he was commending them for. And then he says, okay, I've only got one thing. I mean, what's, what's one thing against so many? He's only got one thing. I would to God that he only had one thing against me. And then he lets the cat out of the bag. You might like the odds of many against one. But with Jesus, this one thing overshadows any good that you do. Did you hear that? Sometimes you say you can't hear me Mom. my voice drops. This one thing that he has against the church at Ephesus, that he has against any church who falls into this category, this one thing cannot be overdone by anything. Jesus says you have left. The most important thing in your life. You have left it. You have lost it. You have misplaced it. And you have missed it. I'll give you my assessment. As a believer. And as a church. We cannot do enough good stuff. To make up. For losing our love of Jesus. First love. I want you to think about this. First love is the top priority of your life. For those who've dated and married, (laughs) most of us, you remember when you started dating and courting? Men, with all deference... That little lady could ask you to do just about anything, and you'd do it. I'm always reminded of the story that the guy said, Honey, I love you more than anything in the world. I love you. I'll cross rivers and oceans. I'll face crocodiles. I'll face snakes. I'll do anything for you because I love you so much. And he said, And I'll see you next Sunday if it doesn't rain. The truth is, the truth is, whatever is in first place in our lives will control us. But now, let me just, since I'm talking about that old dating relationship, can you remember that relationship that went sour? Can you remember that she always would change her plans or he would always change his plans? And perhaps you were the recipient of a couple of familiar speeches. The, I really like you speech, but. Or the real killer women. I know you think this is the way to do it. Let's just be friends. Am I talking to dead people? You know what it means? It means you've now been replaced. The church at Ephesus had replaced Jesus as their first love. Oh, they were doing good things. Yeah, they were still calling themselves the church. They studied the Word. They worked. But He was not the center of their lives. He was not the center of their attention. He was not the center of their focus Other things had taken place and, and taken His place. And here's what I'll tell you. They were now majoring. They were now majoring, focusing on good things at the expense of the best seem to be prevalent in the church today. Last week, you know, we were down in Pascagoula. I was going to leave, Sunday, and I did leave Sunday afternoon to come back up here and left, left Deborah. But at lunch, we met with a couple of now-retired uh, International Mission Board missionaries who have been our friends for 20-plus years. In fact, their last assignment, they worked with Donnie and Jennifer. And as we sat at lunch together, visiting a little bit, they were speaking of the adjustments that come back, that of coming back to America. For you see on the foreign mission field, a person makes a decision for Christ. There is no option. But there is no question. They follow that up with being in classes to learn how to live for Christ. To learn how to live for Christ. It's not like it is here Somebody makes professional faith. And, you know, if you have time, if you can squeeze it in between the ball games and dance and school and work, if you can squeeze it in, we'd like to teach you how. You know, Jesus didn't tell us to go make converts. Do you realize that? The Great Commissioners didn't go make converts. He said go make disciples. I fear that the church today have left their first love so far that we are not living up to His call. We don't meet regularly for discovery of how to become like Christ. We don't meet regularly for discipleship of how to live for Christ. It's my belief if the Lord were to write us a letter today, His words would include, I have one thing against you, you have abandoned your first love. See, if He's truly first in our lives, if He's truly first in your life, then He controls your schedule. Then He controls your finances. Then He controls your focus. He controls your mind. He controls your mouth. He controls your attitude. I ask you, just take a minute. Think through the last week's schedule And tell and tell yourself, don't you have to tell me, where is Jesus? If you were to graph, if you were to graph your conversation over the past week, some of you got Alabama football. Some have Auburn. It could be Tennessee. It could be anybody else. Ball. Others have hobbies. Others have. Gossip, other how, where, how much would, how much would Jesus be on the graph? You see, your first love is the one to whom you allocate time and you allocate your money, you allocate your work, you allocate your effort, allocate your effort. And I'll just say this to you, and if you, if you're really saved, you remember in those early days how freely you spoke his name. How freely you spoke his name. So, his commendation, his condemnation. Let's move. I want to go to his consequences. What are his consequences? You know, it's sad today that by backsliding in the church... It's not considered bad. In fact, it's not considered at all. We don't talk about it. Candidly, it's very blasé. It's very nonchalant. It's very relaxed. In fact, many jokes are given today. Somebody gets saved, hot heart for God. they got a backslide to get into fellowship with the rest of the church. Very little concern about Jesus. For those who claim to be His, the attitude seems to have become... As far as the church goes, if I have nothing else to do or I can find nothing else to do, then perhaps I will attend worship. In fact, I saw a survey not long ago that said for the young adults and the middle adults and the senior adults today, although it was a little higher on the senior adult side, if I attend services once or twice a month, then I consider myself very active in my church. How far a cry is that from the commitment of the second uh, chapter of Acts when they got saved, the Holy Spirit fell, and they met every day. They didn't meet every day because of compulsion. They met every day for two reasons. One, because they wanted to, and number two, because they needed to. When I see the consequences here, it brings back some memories. Look down in verse four. He says, "I have this against you, you've abandoned your first love." And then uh, at the end of verse five, it says, "I will come to you." How is that a consequence? Well, I mean, don't we want Jesus to come to us? Yes, but may I just say this to you? In the context of the scripture, I'm going to tell you the. I'm going to tell you. The, the picture that comes in my mind. I remember when I got in trouble with my dad. Now, there are times I wanted dad to come to me. Son, let's go fishing. Let's go hunting. Let's go out and ride horses. And he came to me. But there were other times, I'm sure you don't know what this is all about, there were other times I really didn't want him coming to me. When I disobeyed him. When I displeased him. Have you ever had your dad or mom to come? You look kind of sleep this morning. Are you okay? If you're looking at the clock, it's all right. I'm not going to be much longer, but you don't have to come back tonight, so you'll be cool, okay? He says, I will come to you. Can you imagine Jesus coming to us with an agenda? I'm reminded of First Baptist Church Purvis. I'm going to guess it was the mid-60s. Um... Maybe may have been the late 60s. I have a friend, uh, his name is O.J. O.J. is a staff member today, served as pastor for a number of years, but O.J. at this time was about five or six years old. And our worship center was uh, was one of those old worship centers, white frame building. The center section was uh, uh, pointed this way, and it was slanted down. The outside sections were pointed in, and they were slanted up, and then you had a balcony out there. And the way you entered was the lobby back in that corner. It was a very small uh, rectangle. Uh, lobby, and one day little O.J. wouldn't be still. This was back when you expected five and six-year-olds—they're old enough to sit in church. Do y'all remember that day? Well, O.J. was old enough to sit in church, and he was sitting in church. He was, but being still, he wasn't. And we kept hearing, "Shh!" shh. Just a second, Miss Betty jumped up and grabbed him by the arm. And drug that little guy out of church. Now, today, I understand it should be reported and child services and all that stuff. But she drug him out to church. And just as they went through the lobby back there, the little boy who had been trying to disrupt the service, we heard him holler, Where are we going? <laughs> I'll never forget Warren he was preaching. He goes, As soon as they got out, he stopped and looked. And they thought, He said, Well, little man, my daddy used to call that a whaling expedition. You see, Jesus says, I'll come to you. You lose the first love, I can come to you. And watch what else he says. He says, I will remove your lampstand. Have you ever thought about the implications of that? Say it with me. What is the lampstand? The lampstand is the church, so he's going to remove the church? I wonder, is is this the reason... Is this the reason, Could it be the reason that so many churches in America today are shutting their doors, are declining because they have abandoned their first love? Oh man, we're going to protect our church. And you know, I've heard all the arguments. We're in a bad community. Well you think God knew where you were sitting when he planted when that church was planted? You think he thought He knew that those folks would be there? He says, okay, you want to abandon me? That is fine. I will extinguish the flame from the church and quite likely he'll replant something else there. Do you know how serious it is to lose your first love and think that God's going to withdraw his spirit? You know how those lampstands continue to, to burn? With oil. That oil all through the Bible is the, represents the Holy Spirit. Of God Again, I never cease to be amazed at the excuses that are made for powerless churches, for loveless congregations. But Jesus had a way out. He then moves to his correction. He then moves to his correction. And just like you remember school, there are three of them. Let's put all three of them up at one time. Brandon, remember, repent, and return. If I had another hour, I could run around all of these. Remember. Remember how far you've fallen. That's what it says. Remember how far you've fallen. You know what? When you fall, it hurts. I have a friend that fell off a ladder 20 foot Thirty years ago, even today, He's still not the same. Remember how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like when you first met Christ. Remember what it was like when He was really your first love. Remember how your language changed. Remember how your attitude changed. Remember how receiving and receptive you were. Remember how graceful and gracious you were. Remember what He did in your heart. Remember. Can you remember today? And then the scripture says, repent. It's interesting in verse 5, the word repent appears two times. He's serious about repentance. If we don't repent, there will be no restoration. And we're talking about a church here, but may I say this to you? Nothing will happen in the church until it happens in your heart. There'll be no restoration. There'll be no restoration. There'll be no renewal. There'll be no revival until repentance comes. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. He may be just calling you to get involved in some ministry so your heart can be restored, reformed, and return to me. Return to the place. You know when you get off the road. Have you? Ever, I know you've never have, but. Sometimes I, I'm a little ge- ge- geographically challenged. You're going down a, a path and you turn off. You know the easiest place to get back on? Right where you got off. What sin was it that carried you off the road? Who was it that helped you get off the road? The backslidden believer, like the backslidden church, is to God. What the wayward child is to a parent. God not only wants for you. He not only longs for you. He not only waits for you. If you start back toward him. I guarantee. Just like the father in Luke 15. He will meet you on the way. And he'll put the ring, the proverbial ring on your finger. He'll put the shoes on your feet. And he'll put the robe on your back. Because he's already killed the lamb. For you. For this body. And it's not so this body can come together every week. And be excited about being together. It's so this body can be on his mission about reclaiming lost people. Because when Jesus becomes your first love. You want to share your love. Let me tell you a story. I remember starting to date, Deborah. I remember we started dating like this. Let this be a lesson to any unmarried people in here. We started dating with this agreement. I won't get serious if you won't. But then we fell in love. Now, we fell in love, and then I proposed to her, and she finally said yes. I went out to play golf with my regular foursome the next week, Jamie, and I didn't even tell them. I went home to Mom and Dad and didn't tell them. Went with some of my college buddies didn't tell them. Went off to play the piano for a quartet, didn't tell them. Just kind of kept it to myself. How many of you believe that story? Okay, I like these gullible people, all right? You know what? When she said yes, I told everybody I can. I went to the golf course, and I told them. I said, I'm getting married. I went to my mom and dad, and I said, don't faint. I found somebody who will have me. In fact, a year after we got married, I called mom one day, and I said, we're getting a divorce. She said, good, tell Deborah to come on home. (laughs) A first love, a first love. Consumes you. Is Jesus your first love? If he is. And if he hasn't been. And if you'll return to him. There is one last thing here. That I want you to see. I want you to see his confirmation. You know what? And we're done. His confirmation. Now watch this. He says. If you will repent. And remember. And return to me. I will make you a victor. That's what it says. I'll make you a victor. And as a victor, you will be able to take part in heaven and to live in paradise with me. So here's where we are today. Here's where we are. If we're honest before God, if we're honest, there may not be a heart in this room who has not experience backsliding in their life. Sitting here today, your heart may be colder than it's ever been. Our Lord offers a solution. Remember. Remember how far. Remember where. Repent. When you say God seems so far away, who moved? Remember repent. And return to him. And he's waiting for you. With open arms.